0: We are honored to have Dr. Betsy Nesbitt come and bring the word to us. Betsy is a professor of counseling at Denver Seminary. She's a published author. In fact, one of her areas of research is to uh, research how the generations relate to one another. She's writing a book with a New Testament prof at Denver Seminary called Craig Blomberg, and that's going to be out at the end of the year. The other thing, second thing I want to share about Betsy is uh, she belongs to us. She's a stoner. She is a Waterstone person, and we have experienced her gifts throughout our church in her teaching and uh, even more in her counseling expertise. She has been huge, like one of the pastors here for the time that she's been at Waterstone. And then the third thing I want to share about Betsy, well, I'm going to let her share it during her uh, sermon today. So before Betsy comes, Stephen's going to come and uh, read the scripture passage of the morning for us. Stephen? A reading from 1
1: Corinthians chapter 7. Sometimes I wish everyone were single like me. A simpler life in many ways. But celibacy is not for everyone any more than marriage is. God gives the gift of the single life to some, the gift of married life to others. I do, though, tell the unmarried and widows that singleness might well be the best thing for them, as it has been for me. But if they can't manage their desires and emotions, they should by all means go ahead and get married. The difficulties of marriage are preferable, by far, to a sexually tortured life as a single. And don't be wishing you were someplace else or with someone else. Where you are right now is God's place for you. Live and obey and love and believe right there. God, not your marital status, defines your life. Don't think I'm being harder on you than on the others. I give this same counsel in all the other churches. Were you Jewish at the time God called you? Don't try to remove the evidence. Were you non Jewish at the time of your call? Don't become a Jew. Being Jewish isn't the point. The really important thing is obeying God's call, following His commands. So please don't. Out of old habits, slip back into being or doing what everyone else tells you. Friends, stay where you were called to be. God is there. Hold the high ground with Him at your side. The Master did not give explicit directions regarding virgins, but as one much experienced in the mercy of the Master... And loyal to him all the way. You can trust my counsel. Because of the current pressures on us from all sides, I think it would be probably the best to just stay as you are. Are you married? Stay married. Are you unmarried? Don't get married. But there's certainly no sin in getting married, whether you're a virgin or not. All I am saying is that when you marry, you take on additional stress in an already stressful time And I want to spare you if possible. I want you to live as free of complications as possible. When you're unmarried, you're free to concentrate on simply pleasing the master. Marriage involves you in all the nuts and bolts of domestic life and in wanting to please your spouse, leading to so many more demands on your attention. The time and energy that married people spend on caring for and nurturing each other the unmarried can spend in becoming whole and holy instruments of God. I'm trying to be helpful and make it as easy as possible for you, not make things harder. All I want is for you to be able to develop a way of life in which you can spend plenty of time together with the Master without a lot of distractions. If a man has a woman friend to whom he is loyal but never intended to marry, having decided to serve God as a single and then changes his mind, deciding he should marry her, he should go ahead and marry. It's no sin. It's not even a step down from celibacy, as some say. On the other hand, if a man is comfortable in his decision for a single life in service to God, and it's entirely his own conviction and not imposed on him by others, he ought to stick with it. Marriage is spiritually and morally right and not inferior in singleness in any way. Although, as I indicated earlier, because of the times we live in, I do have pastoral reasons for encouraging singleness. The word of the Lord.
2: It is truly my joy and my honor to be with you this morning. Um, We are going to talk about singleness and In that, we're going to carry the same theme that we've carried throughout this series, which is that regardless of the life stage you find yourself in, the situation you find your family in, we as the family of Waterstone need to understand where each of us are coming from so that we can better come alongside one another in support, in care, and in partnership as family. So... As much as a lot of what we'll talk about today is directed at singles in terms of what their life experience is like, how they feel, what the pros and the cons are, we're covering that so that the rest of you may also understand how you may come alongside us. So to start with, just some little background here. 44% of of adults in America today are single or unmarried. 56% 56% of young adults ages 25 through 34 in the Denver metro area are unmarried. And Denver has actually just been listed as one of the top three cities for single women looking to be married due to the number of single and employed men that live here in Denver. <laughs> I like that distinction in the, in the research. That was lovely. So um, just as setting that out there as just this premise of for years, I have been a part of churches where when there's talks about marriage or talks about family, the little comments are generally made of like, oh yeah, singles, we, we know this doesn't really apply to you, but you should just, you know, take notes and listen because it'll it'll apply for you someday. Well, if we're almost half of our population here, maybe we should be addressed as whole people that matter in the congregation too. And I appreciated when Nick and Larry asked if... Um, I would come and do this talk because I, not because I wanted to do it, (laughs) but because I was so excited that we were a part of a church that is giving voice and attention to the unmarried among us. So like I said, our purpose today is to gain a deeper understanding of one another so that we can come alongside and support one another more fully. Before we dive into that, I want you to join me on an imaginative journey. And in order to do that, you need to close your eyes. So close your eyes. All right. I want you to imagine in your mind a life in which you are single and have been single for at least the last 10 years, because after all, the average American doesn't get married until they are 27 or 28 years old, leaving at least 10 years of adulthood alone. For some of you, this is just an activity and reflection, for you live it every day. But for the rest of you, join me. Let's begin our day, eyes closed, touching base with, with this experience. Imagine you got up this morning, no one in your bed next to you, no one in your house or apartment. You went to leave for church and went out to your car alone. You drove to church alone. You parked on the parking lot on the east side because walking in on the west side can sometimes be overwhelming when you're walking in because everyone else around you coming in those doors has a partner and children in tow. You walk into the hub alone. You take a look around and see semi-familiar faces, but no one who is your person. You consider introducing yourself to a variety of people, but aren't sure quite how to break into the pairs of people you see around you. So you walk into the sanctuary alone. A mix of emotions comes over you. On one hand, you breathe a bit easier because now you can disappear into the crowd, no one really seeing that you're alone. But on the other hand, the anxiety increases because you must find a seat. Do you sit by yourself with at least one empty chair on either side of you, spending the next hour with a physical reminder on either side of your aloneness in the room? Do you sit with other people who look like they're here alone too and hope that maybe one of them could be a future spouse? Do you sit one seat away from a couple or family that look friendly enough Close enough for an awkward greeting during the welcome, but far enough away to not feel like the third wheel. Finally, you find a seat and sit down, and the beauty of being alone now means you get to worship, listen, and focus without the distraction of someone next to you. It's a bittersweet blessing this time alone with Jesus. The service is now over, and you walk back out into the hub. A part of you feels more connected to these masses, having gotten to worship in community together. And for a moment, you feel less alone. But as you look around, you are again reminded that you are indeed alone. So depending on your personality, you linger or you run. You may linger hoping to bump into someone you might casually know or someone you could start a conversation with. Or if you run, you attempt to get out of there as fast as you can. The awkwardness of standing around isn't worth the slim chance that someone will engage you. Besides, the cute guy who sat alone down the the row from you was just met in the hub by his wife coming out of the nursery. Either way, when you decide to leave, you walk out to the parking lot alone. You get into your car alone. And you head home or to lunch alone. You have spent your morning alone in a crowd. Before you open your eyes, take a moment and check in with yourself. What are you feeling? Are you able to engage the feelings of that experience, the mixture of autonomous strength with aloneness, or is it so foreign from your life that you feel detached or even annoyed that this person in your imagination doesn't do more to get connected? Go ahead and open your eyes. It is very true that not every unmarried person is bothered by this scenario. Some are perfectly content and at ease in their singleness. But more often than not, an unmarried person struggles to attend church alone at some point in their journey. And struggles not only to know, but to feel like we are not alone here. So today, we are going to talk about what this journey is like. In the passage that Stephen read, um, Paul lays out the the pros and the cons of singleness. And we're going to talk about pros and cons today, um, both spiritual and personal and cultural, Um, But before we do that, I want to talk about some emotions that often go with singleness. Two, in fact, that seem somewhat contradictory to one another, but every single unmarried person in this room will probably look at me and go, "Mm mm-hmm, yep. Um, So bear with me. When you ask a counselor to preach, we have to talk about feelings at least a little bit. The two feelings that I really want to talk about are the feelings of grief and the feelings of hope. Hope is something that we all want, we all pursue, we all strive to have. Grief is something that no one wants, but everyone has. And as we talk about these two things, we need to recognize that in order to come alongside someone and help cast hope, we have to let them grieve first As humans, we can only handle and hold so much emotion at any one time, in any one circumstance. And if we're trying to pursue hope, but there are things in our lives that we are disappointed by, saddened by, hurt by, or feel like we have had loss around, we have to acknowledge those first and figure out what to do with that before our hands have room for hope. That's true whether you're single or married, regardless of what marital status or life circumstance you find yourself in. All of us have stages or situations where we look at life and go, I wish it was different. So how do we have grief and hope together? There, this tension that exists, really, I think, I'm trying to find a nice way to say this, it really gets complicated by all 'all y'all well-intended people that want to come alongside single people and offer this like, well, but you're so great. I don't understand why you're not married. I mean, it's just so it's so weird. I mean, God just, I mean, you just, you seem to love Jesus so much. I don't understand why God wouldn't want you married. That's some really bad theology all the way around. What's meant as affirmation and encouragement really comes more from a place of other people's discomfort, And it perpetuates this feelings of grief and feeling misunderstood in the heart of the single. Because there is no formula for getting married. There is no formula for figuring out if I'm a good enough person, if I'm a healthy enough person, if I'm a righteous enough person, then God will give me a spouse. God does not owe you a spouse. That is not something that is this carrot dangling at you that is this reward for you being good or healthy enough or righteous enough. You who are married, you are not married because you are spiritually more mature or healthier than someone else. But neither does it go the other way. You are not single because you are more mature or you are not married because you are less mature. God calls each of us to a different season, a different stage, a different position at different times. And part of our grief in life is when we look at the path that God has laid in front of us and we see a path that we would not have chosen for ourselves. And that's true for every single one of us here. We look at our lives and there are things in our lives that we go, this was not what I would have asked for or what I would have wanted. I was supposed to be in a better financial position by now. I was supposed to be married by now. I was supposed to have a better marriage than this. I was supposed to have kids who were smarter, more athletic, more artistic, better people than they are right now. I, My spouse was not supposed to leave me. My beloved was not supposed to die so young. We all have supposed to's. And in order to accept and step into the hope that that God does offer that we will talk about here in a second. We have to acknowledge and have room for the grief. Proverbs 13 12 talks about um, the, how the hope deferred makes the heart sick is the NIV translation. The message says the unrelenting disappointment leaves you heart sick. And I, I come back to this a lot because for those who are unmarried who desire to be married, Because not everyone who's unmarried wants to be married, but those who are unmarried and want to be married. This is a perpetual state for many of us. We are deferring hope time and time again as we walk the path that God's put in front of us, seeing something out there that we would deeply desire, but is not yet here. So one of the things I want to talk about is when we have this deferred hope, how does it not make us heartsick? How do we move forward in hope, holding on to hope, without, without it hurting and breaking us? I was working with a client um, years ago, and um, she was single, female, and she was really struggling with this idea of being single. All she'd ever wanted was to be married and have kids. And um, so we started talking about this, and in that process, God gave me some language for her that drastically shifted her course of therapy and how has deeply impacted my own personal journey. And that is that there is a difference between having hope for something and having hope in something. It's a semantics difference that I'll explain here in a second. But there is a difference between having hope for and having hope in so hope for something is when we have desire, interest, affection toward. So if I have hope for something, it'd be really nice, and life might—I I could see how life might be a little bit better. That could be enjoyable if if this came to fruition. If I have hope in something, if I'm hoping in the arrival or obtain of, of, or obtaining something, then my identity and my worth is connected to the arrival of that something. So let's take this as, like, a simple example— You're a kid at Christmas and all you've asked for, all you've ever really wanted, maybe not all, but what you really want is this really cool Lego set, right? I love Legos, so it's kind of exciting for me. So you really want Legos and Christmas comes and you unwrap all your presents and there's some really great presents, some presents you never thought you could have even asked for, never crossed your mind, but they're great, but they're not the Legos. And if your hope was for getting Legos, you'll be disappointed and you'll be kind of sad, but you'll move on. And you'll be able to look around and go, okay, I didn't get what I thought I wanted, but this is good. And I can be grateful and thankful for what I do have. Sad, disappointed, yes, but not devastated. If I have put all my hope in getting the Lego set, I tear through all these other presents and I don't care about them because at the end of the day, if mom and dad didn't get me the Lego set, they don't love me. And now I don't have the Legos and I feel less than. And my worth and my identity is connected to not having these Legos and I feel rejected. It is the difference between having hope for it being a desire and having hope in it being connected to my identity. When we place our hope in anything other than the Lord... That hope being deferred will make us sick. It will make our heart sick. When our hope is for something, we can hold that hope in tension of the reality that it may arrive and it may not, and I can be content in where God has me. Psalm 33 speaks to this. um, And in saying, the psalmist says, We wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. In him our hearts rejoice, for we trust in his holy name. May your unfailing love be with us, Lord, even as we put our hope in you. While it may seem overly simplistic and Christian easy, there is a deep truth that all of us, regardless of our life stage, need to embody, and that is that our hope needs to be in the Lord, not in some change of circumstance Or marital status or the arrival of something new different or better into our life in order to embrace that hope we may need to grieve the loss of where our hope had been placed and some of us may even need to repent of our hope being in something other than the Lord as we look at this grief and this hope and we move on to talk about pros and cons Understanding that the singles in this community, the unmarried in this community, have a different kind of grief in their life. Sometimes that grief is a grief of what has never been. They're they're longing for something that's never been a part of their life. And you can grieve what has never been. But for some of you who are single again, the grief is about what has been lost. But either way... The grief comes from a deep place of recognizing that we were made for companionship. And at this point, God has not given you that companion for this season. And there is sadness in that. We don't need to be pitied. We don't need to be felt sorry for. But we need to be acknowledged that this is part of the situation we find ourselves in. So, as we talk about grief and we talk about hope, we'll interweave some of that a little bit here in a second too. I want to talk about pros and I want to talk about cons. And I want to talk about cons second because I think it's in the cons that we actually get to come alongside one another in community and fill in some gaps. So let's start with the pros. As I start talking about pros, I need to tell you a little bit of that third thing that Larry mentioned that's going on in my life. So. This fall, it was like September-ish, Nick and Larry came to me and said, hey, we're doing this modern family series, and we'd like to do a sermon on singleness, and we'd love for you to do it. And I was like, well, that scares the crap out of me, so, okay. And, um, I don't think I said it quite that cleanly, but I, it's close. And, um, but with that, I thought, well, this is great. I'm not, I'm not dating anyone. I have been in a relationship for a few months. The last relationship was good, but it ended, and that sucks. And so I was like, sure, I can do this. So I start jotting down notes and talking to friends and other people here that are single, and what do we need to talk about and what needs to be said. And then in mid-November, Stephen, the cute guy who read scripture a bit ago, he um, came back to me, because he was the guy I was dating before, and was like, I think we should get married. And I was like, mm, I think you're right. <laughs> so, in, so we, we started dating again and within three weeks we're engaged and we're getting married in two weeks. So, thanks. <laughs> so, going from single, not dating anyone to married in four months has been a little bit of a whirlwind while planning a sermon on singleness. The irony has not been lost on anyone involved in this process. We've gotten good chuckles out of the deal. But um, in full disclosure, I stand in this position of being unmarried but almost married. And in that, part of me feels like a fraud talking to you about singleness because I know every single person who is unmarried in this room, when when a married person starts talking about singleness, you're like, peace out. I'm done. I'll sit here and smile and nod at you, but you don't know what you're talking about. And so part of me is really excited to get to speak to you on this side of getting married. Selfishly, I'm also really thankful for this opportunity because when we talk about pros of something, you can also look at pros of a situation being the things that you will have to grieve when you step out of that situation. So as I look to get married and I reflect back on the pros of singleness... They are things that I have to grieve because there are things that I have to leave behind as I step into a new life stage. So this has actually been really cathartic for my process of getting to reflect and getting to see where it is God has brought me and where he is taking me next. So let me share with you some of the things I've, I've landed on. Two different major pros. One is personal pros and one is a spi- or spiritual pros. Personal pros is the idea that your life is your own. Now, that's not totally true for anyone, but in in practice, it kind of is when you're single. You get to pick your own food. You get to decorate your house the way you want to without someone telling you that your purple bathroom and yellow bedroom need to be turned into neutral colors. We'll work through that one. And um, you, you get to choose how you spend your money and where you vacation and how you spend your time and those types of things. And that is honestly a huge pro. Now, there, I know plenty of other unmarried people, myself included, having said, I will trade every pro for the right partner any day. But the reality is there are still pros, and you're having to give them up at some point if you get married. Biggest personal pro, your life has been your own in a unique and different way than it will ever be if you, if you do get married. The spiritual pros are twofold, and they go hand in hand. But the first one is that your life is not your own. Now, that sounds like it's a contradiction to the personal pro, but it actually, in some ways, helps buffer the personal pro that your life is your own. From a spiritual standpoint, your life is never your own, married or single. You are bought with a price. You belong to the Lord. Your life is His, and it is His to do with your life as He desires. Now, while that doesn't always sound like a pro, where it is a pro is that in so For so many of the singles I've talked to, one of the biggest things they struggle with is this idea of being alone or lonely, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But it is in our singleness that I think we have a better opportunity, a different opportunity, a clearer opportunity, to see how the Lord partners with us in life, because he is all we have. And in that... It's kind of like, okay, so for any of us, our life is not our own. We're, God partners with us in things, but I think when we are single, it's kind of like the stars. So the stars are present in the, in, in the sky no matter what time of day it is, but when the sun's there, it's harder to see them. It's when the sun goes away that you can actually see and appreciate the stars. There are times that I believe that in our singleness, it is easier to see that God is present, that we are dependent on him, and that he is our companion as we walk through life. So this idea that our life is not our own, we are connected in companionship. The second second pro that comes with this on a spiritual standpoint is the idea that we have the opportunity to pursue an undivided heart. Again, this is something that married or single we are called to, That is something that God asks of us. But as Paul elaborated on in that 1 Corinthians passage, being single gives us a different kind of canvas in which to explore that and to work on that. Where we are not torn between a very important and significant heavenly relationship and a very important and significant earthly relationship. Now, to clarify, as a single person, it doesn't mean we actually have more time. I've been in situations where people in churches maybe not here, um, have assumed that because you're single you can volunteer more and you can help more. And on some level, m- maybe. We have 24 hours in our day just like you have 24 hours in your day. And given that God calls us to different things in our lives, different commitments, different ministries, we have those obligations as well. Now, we may not have more time, but we do have some different kinds of freedom in how we use that time. And with that, one of the pros is that we get to choose if we invest that time to more fully connect with the Lord and understand our relationship with Him and build it in a way that has less distraction than it could be when we are married. When I said, like, these are, as i work through these pros, I have been very aware of where in this process I have been able to look back and be like, cool, I did that well, and that was good, that went okay, but I've also been very aware of where I've not used my time as well as I could have. Now, as I look to getting married in two weeks, and going, I had these opportunities, I had these pros, I've used them well in some spaces, but I've not used them to their fullest in others, and there is a grief there, there is a loss there, and God and I have wrestled a lot, because part of why I haven't used those, used these opportunities as well as I would have liked is because I'm still working out how do I have this tension and live out appropriately this tension between hope for and hope in. I could have hoped for marriage. I could have hoped for a different life circumstance, but I wrestled with sometimes it bridged and stepped into hoping in that. And when I'm hoping in something other than hoping in the Lord, I'm actually taking away from these pros. So, God and I went back and forth over the last few years, and there's a pa- two passages that I keep coming back to that I want to share with you. They're out of Psalms, Psalm 32 and Psalm 84. We're going to read them as if they are one passage. In this, the psalmist says, I will, speaking from the Lord, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. Remember, No good thing does he withhold for those whose walk is blameless. Lord Almighty, blessed is the one who trusts in you. My challenge to you is, is in how I would summarize this. I would summarize this by saying, regardless of your marital status, this truth to hope in the Lord, to see his good, and to walk with him, is a pro for all Christians, no matter of life stage. Your life is not your own, and you are not alone. That whole passage that we just read out of Psalms is the Lord walking with us. It is not a go out and do this on your own. It is God partnering with us, saying, be amenable to me. For the Lord Almighty walks with you, guiding you in love. Learn to walk closely enough in step with him so that the guidance he offers can be gentle and subtle rather than out of authoritative control because your own stubbornness or lack of surrendered will causes you to put your hope in someone or something else other than him. Submit and humble yourself for you know that he will not withhold good from you and that he is trustworthy. I have, to have, I have had to come back to this time And again in my own journey and it has been in the process of community and other relationship that has helped me come back to hope for rather than hope in a change of life circumstance so the undivided heart we've addressed briefly here already and like I said it is it is the goal of all all Christians Uh, but it is slightly easier as as an as an unmarried person And Paul elaborates on that. Um, 1 Corinthians 7, 32-35 really is where he kind of hashes this out and summarizes better than I could do of why this matters. But basically, it gives us more time to be with the Lord. As we step into looking at cons, we need to look back and reflect on these pros and be aware that in embracing the pros, that... Whatever life stage, whatever life circumstance God has you in, there are pros available to you, both for your personal growth and for your spiritual growth. Rather than focusing on the cons, rather than wallowing in the grief, acknowledging it but looking toward hope, can you look and see in your own life stage what the benefits are that God has offered you right now, whether in partnership or in singleness? They exist, and are you taking advantage of them? Because at some point, they could change. So while we've talked about grief, hope, and pros related to singleness, we need to address some of the specific cons of being unmarried, for it is in the awareness of the cons that community can come together in relationship and support, and there are three primary cons that I want to talk about. So again, coming back to this idea that part of why we're here, part of why we're talking about this today is to understand how we can support one another, and it is in the cons that we can really come together. So first con is dating. Dating sucks. I don't care who you are, it's not fun, it's not enjoyable. Not if you're actually serious about dating. If you're just like, I want someone to buy me dinner, that can be fun. Um, but if you're actually looking to find somebody, dating sucks. And it's just, it's taxing, it's time consuming, it's vulnerable, um, it's risky. And the one activity that is meant to help you not be alone when it doesn't go well makes you feel more alone. And so it's just, it's not fun. And our community tends to respond to single people who may or may not be interested in dating in two different ways. And I've had both of these said to me. The first one was when I was in seminary. And I had a friend of mine, somewhat jokingly, looks at me and goes, for goodness sake, Betts, you're at a seminary. Just grab one and go. As if all you need for a lifelong partner is that they love Jesus, or at least think they love Jesus. Like, that's a great foundation, but no. mm -mm, That is not enough. The flip side was when I was um, working at a school in Arkansas before I moved here, and um, I'd been working with um, this wonderful admin for about three years, and I'd been offered the job back at Denver Seminary, and so I told her I was leaving, and she goes, I mean my goodness, like what does Denver have that we don't have? And I was like, oh, so much. I don't really know where to start with that. But we'll 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 go with I jokingly, but somewhat seriously said, I really want to get married, and I don't think that the type of person I'm gonna to want to marry will be is living here. And little did I know Stephen actually worked in the building down the hall. <laughs> he just had to move here. See, I was still right. He had to move here. But um and so But she looked at me and she goes, really? And I was like, what do you mean, really? She's like, I thought you were really happy and fine doing this whole career woman thing. Like, I didn't know you actually wanted to get married. And I was like, oh, oh, um, excuse me? I said, I haven't complained or whined about not being married, but part of that is because God's put me here and I'm trying to do what God's put in front of me to do, but that doesn't mean that I wouldn't welcome something different. And she goes, well, if I would have known that, I'd have been setting you up all over the place. I was like, well, that actually could have made life a little more enjoyable, although the dating sucks part, but this might have been a little more hopeful. And, um, and with that, like, I, I, I tended to get those two responses of like, why are you, why do you have any standards whatsoever? Or because you seem not miserable, you must not want to get married. So with that, I would just say, If you know single people in your life, ask them. Ask them if they want you to set them up. Ask them if where they're at. Some of them might be like, I'm tapped out. I've had a rough dating history. I need a break. Others might go, no, I just haven't met anybody. Bring it on. But ask. Don't assume. You're not going to hurt someone's feelings one way or the other, especially if you're asking respectfully. So con number one, dating sucks. Con number two. Celibacy. There is nothing more challenging to conviction and identity than the conflicting messages that singles receive about their sexuality from the church and then from society. From our society, we are told that our sexuality is what defines us and we must express it in sexually active ways in order for it to be valid. But then we come to church, and scripturally we believe that sex is meant to be used only inside of marriage, And in that, to act outside of that, is sinful and inappropriate. So whether you believe the culture and choose a celibate life, or you believe the church culture and live the cultural life, the secular life, you feel more ashamed, more ostracized, and less than. Because it's a no-win. You're either less than over here, or you're less than over here. Now, I do not in any way think we need to compromise the biblical standard of holiness when it comes to sexuality. It is a high standard that we need to hold, and it can be held, and it can be accomplished. But we as a community need to understand that this is a very difficult challenge within our society and our culture today. The average American loses their virginity at age 17. If the average American doesn't get married until 27 or 28, you do the math. Less than 5% of adults are still virgins by the time they are 29. And nearly 70% of unmarried 18 to 40-year-old evangelical Christians reported having had at least one sexual relationship in the last year. That means that even within the church, we are not adhering to our own biblical standard of celibacy outside of marriage. I do not say that to shame or to lesson anyone in this room. I say that so that we as a community can come together and be family together and offer support, encouragement, affirmation, and accountability in this area. I also bring it up because I don't think that the right question is what do you believe about sex outside of marriage or not? I think the right question that Nick will address in a couple weeks when he talks about sexuality is what is your theology of sexuality? And that is a question that all of us have to answer, whether married or single. Have you wrestled with what you believe Scripture says as to why God made us male and female? Why he made us sexual beings? That's not bad. That's part of our image of God in us. But in that, have we also then wrestled with why he's given us certain standards of behavior and why there is, what the significance and spiritualism, spirit, the significance and symbolism is of, of our sexuality. Giving it the spiritual weight it deserves, not just a behavioral mandate. So rather than diving into that, I'm gonna let Nick talk about that one. But just something to be thinking about. Our third con. So we've got dating is a con. A call to celibacy in a highly sexualized culture is a con. Our third con is that of loneliness. In a culture, particularly a church culture, that sets everything, most things, around being coupled, being unmarried is rather lonely. You don't have your person who goes with you. And you're keenly aware that while you are in no way incomplete being single, In the garden, it was one whole man plus one whole woman equaled one whole relationship. You are not incomplete in being single, but you you do not have the same type of companionship that is offered to those who are married. Time and again, as I talk with single people and I ask, what's one of the hardest things? They come back to loneliness and they come back to this phrase, I am just so tired of making decisions by myself. I'm tired of making decisions about whether I take a job or I move or I do this health procedure or that one or how I address this conflict with my family or this conflict at work by myself. The reality is, on some existential level, we are all alone. But as a single, unmarried person, there is no one who shares the weight or the experience of those decisions except you. When you're married, someone else lives out the good and the bad of those with you. But as a single person, you carry them yourself. And there is a weightiness to that that perpetuates that sense of aloneness. Each of us has a desire to be known and to be intimately connected to another person. And I think this, this con of loneliness is what makes all the other cons all the harder, that We are seeking connection and intimacy, and our churches don't offer us those opportunities in many ways. Our culture absolutely doesn't offer us opportunities for intimacy that doesn't include some sexualized element to it. We as a church, we as a family here, need to be creating spaces in which we can be intimately connected to one another in platonic and non-sexual ways. Ways that we can come together and share life, share vulnerabilities, share hopes, share fears, and share grief. This will not solve the other issues of cons that we've talked about, but it will help mediate some of the pain and the grief that goes with them. Ultimately, our connection for intimacy is to be found in God and God alone, but we are still made for companionship, made for human intimacy as well. We need to find ways to connect together. So while loneliness compounds the difficulty of any other con that singleness has to offer, this is the exact place in which we can come together and support the unmarried in our congregation. For it is in community that we can help one another grieve and find hope. It is in community that we rejoice and share in the positives, and it is in community that we help carry the burdens of the cons. So let's talk a bit about how we can do that in our last couple minutes here. There's some very practical things, but they fall into three different categories. And again, every unmarried person's experience will vary. Some are perfectly fine, feel very good connected, very a part of things. But for many of us, we feel like we're on the fringes. So the first thing, in in order to better understand and connect, the first thing I, I think we need to do is we need to not offer special treatment to the unmarried. We just need to not exclude them either. So we don't need this special little group just for singles, although sometimes that's fun. We need to be included in with the rest of everybody. Okay? So, for example, when I first came to Waterstone about three and a half years ago, I was 30. um, And I was starting to teach at at the seminary. And in that, my whole world was 20 and 30-somethings. But I'm their professor. I'm their mentor. Right? So, backstory. So, I come here. And I'm looking. And I get here, like, August, September. Right in time to sign up for Fall Small Groups. I was like, awesome. I'm going to dive in. I'm going to get connected. And there was a little cards that you check, like, what day of the week do you want? What type of group do you want to be a part of? And I just said, not Wednesdays. Because I had to teach on Wednesday nights. And other than that, I didn't care. I just needed community. So I was like, not Wednesdays. And as I look at the other options, it's like 20s and 30s singles. Over 35 singles. Young married, married with young kids, high schoolers married with high schoolers, um, empty nesters. And so I'm like, I don't like any of these options because you put me with twenties and thirties and now I'm doing ministry in my Bible study. And if you put me with the older singles, the thirties and up was really more like 45 and up. And so I didn't totally fit there. So on my little card, I wrote in any day but Wednesdays and please don't put me in a singles group. I said, because I've, and I wrote this in. I said, I, I just moved here and I would really like the opportunity to build family within this church, to find multi generational community. They put me in a singles group. So I called the pastor in charge at the time of the small group stuff and I said, so help me understand why you put me in a singles group. And they said, well, we just thought you'd feel more comfortable there. And I thought, yeah, thank you. Uh-huh. I was really good. I'm new. I had not learned I could say stuff yet." And so I quietly thought to myself, snarkily to myself, really, you thought I'd be more comfortable there, or is it that you would be more comfortable with me there? So I joined the singles group, and it was fine. I've met some great people. I've enjoyed the group a lot. But I also thought, okay, if I can't get multi-generational, multi-life stage there, maybe I can in the women's ministry. So I pulled up the women's ministry flyer, found out in the hub, at the time, and it said, we welcome women of all ages, whether you are a young mom or an empty nester, we have a place for you. <laughs> no, you don't. <laughs> and so I didn't go. Now, I could have pushed in and said, I'm gonna make a space for me. But I didn't have the energy at that point. I just moved, I was starting a new job, and getting into the single script was enough. We now have better options <laughs> but at that time we didn't. And that was really hard. So what does it look like to not necessarily give us special treatment, but to not exclude us either? And and that is a lot to do with language and how we structure things. The third, uh, third, the second way we can do application in this is to invite us in. When I speak to singles about this and I speak to married people about this, the singles go, we have no problem showing up to something that is mostly married couples as long as they're fine with us. The married couples are the one that go, oh, we just wouldn't want them to feel like a third wheel. We're not going to feel like a third wheel if you're not all hanging on each other Couplely, We'll be fine. Invite us in. That, that third wheel, fifth wheel, seventh wheel issue has to do more with the, the, the atmosphere of an experience than the numbers of who are there. So invite us in. It's a lot harder for us to invite ourselves into something because there's more of you. So in that, you hold the power you need to invite us in. Singles, we got to invite ourselves in when we can, but realistically as a congregation, we need to invite the singles in. Third is that we need to connect on our similarities rather than emphasizing our differences. Churches today tend to be very compartmentalized in terms of we put first graders with first graders and high schoolers with high schoolers and young marrieds with young marrieds and all this. But if we are to be family for one another, which is what we've been talking about, families are not homogeneous in age. We need to be diverse, we need to be welcoming others in, and we need to reap the benefits of what it means to have someone who is single, someone who is married, someone who is a grandparent, someone who is widowed, all in our community together because we each bring a different perspective on who God is and how he's working that we can all gain from. So let's connect on those similarities. That means you know someone who might like your book club, who cares if they're married or single, you invite them. You know someone who wants to play golf? Same deal. You know someone who likes to go hiking? Invite them. We're connecting on our similarities rather than on our our demographic definition. Um, On our next slide, we've got some specific examples that I'll enumerate out here for you as well. Some of that means being intentional in your small groups. How do you invite people in? Now, there's a time and a place for homogenous groups where we need to be with like staged people, but when possible, open those doors up. Invite people for coffee, invite people to join you in recreational activities. You see someone in the church who seems like they're here alone, married or single, they're here alone. Have a conversation with them. Invite them to sit down with you. Invite them to lunch with you and your family or your friends afterwards. We have two very large singles groups here at Waterstone. One is a 20s and 30s group that's mostly single but not exclusively. And the other is the the link, which is the over 30, over 35 singles group. Contact the leaders and find out how your group can connect with one of those groups. And start bridging. Start doing joint activities together. The other thing is holiday invitations. Denver is a city of transplants. More than 50% of us did, were not born here. So that means we don't have natural family here. How do we be family for one another? That's holiday invitations. That's birthday celebrations. That's those day-to-day markers that are significant, but we don't have someone to share them with. For the last probably five years at least, maybe closer to 10, I've hosted an orphan's Thanksgiving at my house every year. And it's for those of us who don't have family in the community. What would it look like if this Thanksgiving, all of Waterstone was in a home for Thanksgiving, together with one another? Whether that's you invite someone into your family or collaboratively, couples, families, individuals come together and host holidays with with each other. So those are just some suggestions. I'm sure you can come up with more. But as we've looked at pros, we've looked at cons, we've looked at grief and hope. At the end of the day, we are all human, We are all made in the image of God and all desirous of being a part of a family where we are known and accepted. While each of our life journeys may have taken a different path, married versus unmarried, is not a declaration of better or worse, spiritually mature or immature. God has given each of us a unique call for today, and that call asks us to be content in the position he's placed us in. Our hope, regardless of circumstance, is to be in him and not in a change of status or position. Any one of us in moments or months could find ourselves taking on the other's title. But for now, we are to live in the position that God has given each of us, for that is our calling for today. Grieve what needs to be grieved, acknowledge the cons where they exist, and embrace the pros. We are family, and we need each other. To the unmarried, I want to affirm that you are welcomed here. You are wanted here And you are not seen as lacking or less than. Get involved where you want to. Join whatever small group you want to. And invite yourself into the life of the Waterstone family. To the marrieds, invite us in. Share with us who you are. Welcome us into your families. We promise the relationship will be mutually beneficial. We all have something to offer. We all have pros about the life stage we're in. We all have cons about the life stage we're in. But it is in the cons that we come together and support one another. So my challenge is as we move out from here that we step into a new awareness of what it means to be family, what it means to support one another and come alongside one another regardless of marital status. I thank you for the opportunity to share with you today and let me close us with prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this family. I thank you for the way Waterstone has been family to me and to many of us here. I pray that as we go out from here that the unmarried in this congregation will feel known, will feel heard, um, will feel wanted, and will feel a little less alone. Lord, for the marrieds, I pray that they too will feel a part of things here and find a space in which to help connect with us as well. I thank you for the way you love us, the way you support us, and the way you are our Father, for we are all part of your family. I thank you and in Jesus' name. Amen.